Thank you for that prayer, Pastor Nathan. It's good to see you, church. I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad that you have uh, made it to the Lord's house this morning. Uh, we are in 2 Kings chapter 20. Uh, keep your finger, though, in chapters 18 and 19 as well, as we're going to be sort of covering all three of those chapters. As we are within, we could say, a little mini-series within a bigger series, this mini-series is looking at the life of King Hezekiah who I have found uh, to be a most fascinating character in terms of all of the litany of kings that have uh, taken the throne of Judah. And I think it's especially interesting how the historian spends three chapters detailing his reign. Last week, we saw how uh, Hezekiah and the people of Judah faced this intense trial as the king of, of Assyria, Sennacherib, came up to the gates of Jerusalem and attempted an invasion. Of course, which was thwarted mightily and miraculously by God. It was an incredible lesson in which we were taught who to trust, who to put our confidence in for Deliverance. And I think that's a lesson that we too can face, that we too can take home into hearts and to how we are to have confidence in the Lord of all things in our own trials. But despite that little instance, there's much more to glean, I would say, from Hezekiah apart from that invasion or attempted invasion by Assyria. You know, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 15. He says that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. Of course, throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been alluding and referring to a a, a plethora of Old Testament passages and stories and all of those different little anecdotes. He is there sort of putting the, the capstone on all of that by saying, all of that is for us to be comforted, to be encouraged in the hope that we have in the word of God itself. As he says, it is for our instruction. So it leads me to this question here as we approach chapters 18, 19, and 20. This sort of triad of chapters that focus on King Hezekiah. And we look at this life of his as a whole. What sort of hopeful lessons do we find? What sort of comforting lessons do we find from this very ancient king? Well, I've been thinking about that. as I've been spending a lot of time in these chapters, in these verses, really trying to wrap my head around perhaps what the historian is trying to show us by recounting this story of Hezekiah in the way that he does. And I think what's clear is that Hezekiah was a man of faith. We've seen at the very beginning of his reign, he does, as we're going to detail in a minute, this incredible movement that he has to bring the worship of Yahweh back into the center of the life of all of those who lived in the nation of Judah. And as a man of faith, I think what becomes very clear is that his faith is very much like ours. If you are here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you are sort of part of the family of faith, the community of faith. And we all have a faith in this Jesus, in the truth that Jesus expresses to us by his word. And that faith is being built and grown and developed and chiseled all the time. In various ways, we are being worked on to deepen our faith all 
the time. And I would say very much, even though he lived two and a half millennia ago, this king, his faith and trust is very similar to ours. Complete with all of the ups and the downs, all the ebbs and the flows, the highs and the lows that come along with having faith. And being a human, being a sinner. I think what we see in Hezekiah is I think what we see, not just in the rest of the Old Testament, but in the rest of the Bible. Which is this fact, that I think God is not the least bit interested in choosing who we think he should to carry out his purposes and plans. Almost Often, it's almost sort of a prerogative of God. I think actually he gets this sort of peculiar delight in choosing sort of those who we think he shouldn't to do what he wants to do. He chooses people who are weak. He chooses people who can't get out of their own way. He chooses people who are discouraged. Who fail even. And he chooses those to be the brightest emblems of faith across all these vast and large swaths of history. He chooses people who continually mess up. One of my friends, he, he wrote this. He says, quote, God doesn't select the sainted or pick the pious but regularly pans for gold in the sewers of this world. And even there, he doesn't find gold, but plain old stinking covered rocks that he washes and polishes and gilds with grace. I think that's what God does. He's panning for gold in the sewers of history. The sewers of History that are filled with lots of sordid and very sinful human beings. And there he takes them out of all of that carnage and wreckage and sin. And he does something mighty through them. He implants his faith into them. And he builds them up as examples of faith. You see it's his work that accomplishes that. And the Bible tells that story about how God chooses those sorts of people. And you could even say that the Bible is a catalog of just that. The catalog of God's very unlikely choices. The people he chooses to do extraordinary things. And the only requirement is a faith that is incredibly ordinary. I think that's what Hezekiah shows us. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I have three lessons for you this morning. Three lessons that detail, I think, this very ordinary faith that's exemplified by Hezekiah that shows us, I think, our own faith. Our own faith this morning. The first lesson in the text that you'll see here is faith's demonstration. Faith's demonstration. Notice, go back to chapter 18 of 2 Kings. And notice how the historian reviews this history of King Hezekiah. This sort of way in which he began his reign. 2 Kings 18, look at verse 1. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Again, this is a very glowing review of this king. He's, we could say, the closest to David Judah ever got ever since David. 
He's living up to the faithful covenant that God had made with David. That if you follow me, I will bless you. I will establish your throne forever. I will not allow anyone to take the, your dynasty away from you. And of course, in all of those intervening years, we've seen how not just Israel, but even Judah itself, the line in the nation of promise has been put to the test over and over again. With evil king after evil king, with battle after battle, with struggle after struggle, with idolatry after idolatry. And yet here, at seeming the sort of the twilight years of Judah as a nation, we have Hezekiah, who distinguishes himself from all of that litany of wicked rulers and kings by clinging to and following God alone, Yahweh himself. Notice verse 5. It says that he, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. A stellar resume Hezekiah has. He's following God, holding fast to the words and ways that God has commanded out of his word. This is what makes him stand out. Again, as it says, he, there's none before him and none after him who is like Hezekiah in one particular way. As it says in verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. It's a wonderful phrase. In some of your Bibles, it might be translated that he clave or he cleaved or clung to the Lord himself. Phenomenal picture there. It just literally means to stick or to keep close to. That's Hezekiah. He's a leader of God's people who's sticking close to God himself. The same idea appears, by the way, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Where in that passage, God is talking about the union between a man and a woman. Where God says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The same sort of image is in both passages. This clinging to, this holding fast. And Genesis is talking about a husband and a wife. Here it's talking about a king and his God. It's denoting the close and intimate union that Hezekiah had with his Lord. To even get it further into your mind's eye, let me take you to one passage. I love this image, Job. You can go with me to Job chapter 41. Job chapter 41. God is in the midst of responding to Job's questions by Asking his questions of his own. Rhetorical questions about where was Job. When the founding of the earth was being established. And in part of this. God is trying to establish. Just how high and superior he is. As God alone. And here he describes. The scales. Of this ancient sea creature. Known as Leviathan. And notice how he describes this creature. Job 41 verse 15. He says, His back, Leviathan's back, is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. So, 
One is so near to one another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. God is describing this mythological creature, this creature that perhaps he spoke into existence. And he's saying, who has dominion over this creature? Me. (laughs) And this creature is so vast and mighty. Its scales are so close to one another that they cannot be separated. No air can come between them. They are so knitly joined one to another. And that same phrase is the phrase from Genesis is the same phrase here. Cleave, cling to, hold fast. (laughs) That's the image of Hezekiah's faith. This is what makes him a king worthy of note, worthy to be distinguished from all the other kings of Judah. He had a faith that was so joined to Yahweh, and he was clinging so tightly that no air could come between them, so to speak. He was that determined. To not let anyone divert him from this faith. From this following after God. He's an example I think of that to us. But even more than that. I think he examples something else. Because he has this faith. This faith that is so knit to Yahweh himself. But the point is that he didn't just say that he had this faith. He didn't just proclaim that I have a faith in Yahweh that's like no one else. He demonstrated it. He put that faith Into action. By instituting this wholesale, widespread, nationwide revival, or we could say reformation. Notice again verse 4, back in our text of 2 Kings 18. It says that Hezekiah removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it it was called Nehushtan he is here bringing about widespread sweeping reformation breaking down idols casting down images breaking apart the high places and again the The point of note is that he does this immediately. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 29, the parallel passage, the chronicler there says that he does all this. He starts this movement of breaking down all of this idle and and sinful practices in the very first month of his reign. As soon as he gets into office, so to speak. The way in which he wants to define and distinguish himself as king of Judah is that we are insisting upon trust in Yahweh alone. We're breaking down idols, tearing down all these images. Anything that could divert or distract the people of God away from worship and faith in Yahweh alone was cast aside and demolished and destroyed. Because Yahweh... Was that important? And Hezekiah was very sure that his faith was in Yahweh alone. In fact, the chronicler, if you, you don't have to go there, but you can flip through the pages. Because what the historian here goes about in a couple of verses, the chronicler takes us through three chapters of Reformation. In fact, 2 Chronicles 29, 30, and 31 take us through the vast litany of things that he, that he establishes or perhaps we could say revives for the people of Judah. He cleanses the temple and the priests. He renews their worship and they even begin to celebrate Passover again. 
And it culminates in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 26. I'll just read this. It it ushers in this season. It says in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 26, a season of great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Unprecedented days indeed. This king, this king of Judah, brought about this season. That was almost unheard of. They hadn't seen faith like this since those days of Solomon and David. Hundreds of years before this moment. Hundreds of years have passed since they've been able to see worship, see faith like this. And it all came about, yes, because of the work of God, but also because this king had a willingness to demonstrate his faith. He didn't just say he trusted, he showed it. If you remember, in some of those other passages that we've gone to and we've seen kings of Judah, what does it always say? Even if there's a king, perhaps, who was faithful to Yahweh, it says, except the high places remained. (laughs) Except the high places remained. (laughs) It's almost as if there's this big contrast here between all those other kings who were pretty good, pretty faithful, pretty devoted to the things of the Lord, and yet here Hezekiah. He actually does it. He actually decimates those high places. Gets rid of the people's idols. He actually puts action. Firm affirmative action. To the things that he says that he believes. To the things that he affirms. I think in this regard. I think we could use a few more Hezekiahs. In our own day. Because I would. I fear to say. But I have to say. I think that the church by and large is populated. By many who say they have faith, who say they believe, but they are content to sort of just sit on their hands and not really do much of anything. We say we believe when we declare, yes, I have faith in this, but yet we're not always willing to show it. Which brings me and reminds me of a particular pastor from the New Testament. And James, go with me there for a second. Because I think Hezekiah sort of examples James for us in a pretty remarkable way. James chapter 2, where James writes those pretty shocking words about faith and what constitutes a living faith and what constitutes a dead faith. James 2 verse 14, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. These are pretty alarming words, words which I would say have made none too few theologians shudder. Because it seems that James is... Rebutting the idea of faith alone. Of course, that's not at all what he's meaning to assert. He's not asserting that you have to have works to have saving faith. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about, his assertion is that saving faith is always known and demonstrated by works of faith. And that, indeed, a dead faith is, we could say, an undemonstrated faith. That word dead there means... Inanimate or ineffective or inactive. 
It's dead. It's useless. It's not producing anything of worth or value. True faith, as James here asserts, and as is, is example for us in Hezekiah, true faith is always demonstrated. It's put into practice. There's action verbs that follow it. And I think the thing is this. I think sometimes we scare ourselves into thinking that we have to do something perfect or gargantuan in order to have our faith to be properly expressed. I can't do that. I, I, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know how to, I wouldn't know how to do that. I wouldn't, I, I, I'm, I'm too young of a Christian. I, I, I don't, we scare ourselves. Thinking that we have to have our, our, our faith sort of uh, uh, perfectly put together. When actually all that God is looking for is willingness. And in fact, we could even say that all that God is asking is for that mustard seed sized faith. <laughs> That's the faith that moves mountains. That's the faith when properly demonstrated can result in sweeping reformations. It's the king who's willing to demonstrate his faith. And it leads to this resurgence of faith in the nation of God's promise. Faith's demonstration. Secondly, back in our text in 2 Kings 18. Faith's examination. Faith's examination. Notice, because here, after sparking this widespread revival... Uh, this propelled the people of God to this great season of renewal, the season, the season of prosperity that has come back into the realm. Second Kings 18, look at verse 7. It says, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and his territory. From watchtower to fortified city, God is with Hezekiah. He's bringing abundance back into Judah. He's bringing success and triumph and economic abundance. The people of God are experiencing true revival across every sphere of life. And it begins, yes, with this demonstration of faith by the king himself who centers all of life around Jehovah God himself. Which is perhaps surprising because we find out in chapter 20 that that faith is soon put into jeopardy. Notice chapter 20 verse 1. It says, in those days... Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Imagine getting those words one day. <laughs> it might at first be startling, but that might at first also be relieving. Because you can know exactly what your fate is. And he says, get your house in order. Set your affairs right. You're not going to make it. You're not going to last the night. And this bluntness stirs Hezekiah so much that he has to pray. And he prays, I imagine, through a flood of tears and weeping and desperation. He says, verse 2, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. 
and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He's pleading. He's on his knees. God, remember how I walked after you. Remember how I demonstrated my faith in you. God, speak to me and heal me because I have been faithful to your word. He's not being prideful. Don't read this out of a sense of pride. He's humbly reminding God, God, I've been faithful. Please come on my behalf and deliver me. Remember your promise. And in a stunning turn of events, (laughs) Isaiah the prophet is given another word. Notice verse 4. Because before, he's barely made it out of the house, out of Hezekiah's house of, of, of dwelling. Yet God speaks to him again to go back inside. Verse 4, and before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Isn't that wonderful? Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake. And for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs. And let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And so he does. The king recovers. After Yahweh, the Lord of heaven, answers this king's desperate faith. And as a result, he's given 15 extra years. You see, what's interesting to know about this chapter, chapter 20, is that actually these events of this sickness, this near fatal illness that has come upon Hezekiah, actually occurs before the events of Snickerage's invasion. It's Confusing when the historian does that. But chronologically speaking, that faith that Hezekiah demonstrates in chapter 18, at the very beginning, what's his reward? His reward is a visit to the ICU. Where he's flat on his back, almost dying. That's what that demonstration cost him. Go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 31 because it actually puts this more into light. Notice how the chronicler there distinguishes this little moment. 2 Chronicles verse or 2 Chronicles 31, notice verse 20. The same scene, notice it says, Thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah, and he did that which was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God in accordance with the law and the commandments seeking his God and with all his heart and prospered. He's prospering. He's thriving. And how is he rewarded? By getting sick, sick nearly unto death. This is one of those head-scratching moments, right? Why would God mess with a good thing like this? Why would, why would God jeopardize the faith of his people who've just been brought back out of this revival by seemingly put their king out to pasture? 
Why would he reward Hezekiah's dedication, this demonstration of his faith with this sickness? And then even after that, with his siege by Sennacherib. What kind of reward is that for my faith? Perhaps you've asked similar questions. You've thought, man, I've been faithful. I've been right where I've needed to be. And look at what that's getting me. Look at what that is actually, look at how I'm being rewarded for my faith. I'm trying to live for God. And look at what he's allowing to come about. It can be frustrating. And in fact, that question peppers the Old Testament. And I would say, if you've asked similar questions like that, those very frustrating questions like that, you're in good company. Because there's a lot of people in the Old Testament who've asked those same sorts of questions. And I would say this, that a constant throughout the pages of the Bible, but also throughout all of life, is that the faith of the faithful is always put to the test. That God at various times and in various ways allows trials to enter into our lives. He examines our faith in order to prove how genuine it really is. Of course, you can go there if you want, but this brings me back to James. <laughs> Interestingly enough, as at the beginning of James chapter 1, he has those very memorable words. James 1 verse 2, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, why? For you know that the testing, the examination of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Faith, yes, even though you may cling to God and you say you have faith, that does not mean you're going to be immune from hardship and adversity and affliction. Contrary to how some pastors might want you to believe, faith does not mean you have a force field against bad things happening. In fact, a theme throughout the Bible is just the opposite is true. That pledging allegiance to Jesus, if you will, means hardship will come. Your faith will be put to the test. The caliber of your faith is often proven through the crucible of suffering. And I would say that perhaps your current trial this morning, whatever that may be, whatever that is. Indeed, I think it's God's way of examining the faith that you say you have. And that's a very frightful thing. You say you believe, and God's putting you to the test. It's like, you know, you often, you often hear about this, you know, at prayer meetings or whatever, and, you, and the person says, I'm going to pray for patience. And that's like, are you sure you want to do that? Because <laughs> you know that God is going to put you into a spot where you're going to have to put into practice patience. Saying you believe in Jesus is automatically, we could say, an invitation To having that faith be put to the test. To find out what your breaking point is. Have you ever heard this phrase, by the way? God won't give you more than you can handle. It sounds good, but I actually think it's... I think it's hogwash. I don't think God won't give you more than you can handle stands up. 
Actually, I think part of having your faith examined and tested is actually bringing you to the point where you think you can't go anymore and actually sometimes over it. Because that's faith. When God brings you past your breaking point and all you have is faith. All you have is what you believe in this God and God alone. That's where he wants you. That's part of having your faith examined. And yes, that is a very scary thing. Because that puts us in that position where it's, our faith seems tenuous. Our faith can seem strained. It can f- seem exhausted. But God is ushering us. Ushering us to that point where faith in him is all that we have and all that we need. Because that's where he wants us. Because when we reach our limits, that's where God can flourish. That's where God's marvelous and sovereign grace abounds with power and opportunity. Sometimes our faith is examined and is scary. (laughs) But our faith persists because of who holds it. And that brings me to the last lesson in our text. Back in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19 and 20. We've seen faith's demonstration, faith's examination, and lastly this morning, faith's frustration. Faith's frustration. Because obviously, King Hezekiah's faith was put to the test, examined in a very uh, demonstrable way by this sickness that came upon him that almost cost him his life. And then by this invasion by the king of Assyria, which nearly lost him his throne and his country. And you would think that after both of those trials, after both of those testings and examinations, that Hezekiah would have a faith that is so buttressed, so built up, that he would not be able, or that he would be able to face whatever else might come his way. He has a faith that's resilient. He's been through some difficult seasons. And yet, that's where the historian informs us that even this king was forced to watch his faith fail right in front of his very eyes. Notice verse 12. Because right around the time of Hezekiah's miraculous recovery from that very fatal or near fatal illness, he receives a letter, a letter from the king of Babylon. Notice, at that time, verse 12, Merodach Baladan The son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. He sends this caravan of gifts and presents and pleasantries along with these letters. Congratulating Hezekiah on his newfound health. He sort of rolls out the red carpet for him, this king of Babylon does. And... Hezekiah immediately becomes enamored with all of this attention he's getting from this king of Babylon. So much so that he's basically all smiles as he welcomes these visitors and reads their letters. And eventually he parades them gleefully around the kingdom. Notice verse 13. And Hezekiah welcomed them. And he showed them all his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. 
It's amazing what flattery will do. In Isaiah chapter 39, you can write it down. You don't have to go there. But in Isaiah 39, we have the same exact scene repeated again. And there, it actually says that he was glad. He hearkened gladfully, gleefully at what these Babylonian messengers said to him. So he gives them this grand tour, leaving no cranny of the kingdom unvisited. Here's how much money I have. Here's all the weapons I have. Here's what my fortress looks like. Here's the way we defend Jerusalem. (laughs) Isaiah eventually gets wind of this. He hears about this tour that Hezekiah is taking these Babylonian messengers on. And he's not very happy. He's not very happy to hear how Hezekiah was blushing all the while bringing these diplomats from Babylon all over the kingdom. Notice verse 14. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. And there was nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. A word of judgment comes upon Hezekiah and upon Judah. Foretelling what was to come about in just a few short decades. How these very same Babylonians who are being greeted and welcomed and given sort of the grand tour of Jerusalem. Are going to be the very same Babylonians that are going to cart off all of Hezekiah's granddaughters and grandsons off into exile. A sobering word of judgment to be sure. Because you see, what might have been obvious to you, should have been obvious to Hezekiah, is just the fact that this letter that he receives was not a goodwill letter. The king of Babylon, he's not very well known for just being interested in the health of the kings that are around him. That's not really something that he does. And in fact, this letter is driven more of a concern for his own political agenda than Hezekiah's health. You see, Merodach Baladon, the king of Babylon, had just seized Babylon out of Assyrian control. Assyria, if you read the history, by the way, of Assyria and Babylon, is constantly flipping back and forth between who has control over it. And in this particular moment in history, Babylon is back in control of Babylon again. So you see, this letter is actually a scheme. By which this king is hoping to flatter Judah into aligning with him. Coming into allegiance with him as as Babylon fortifies itself against future Assyrian invasions. And it works. Hezekiah likes the praise. He likes the words he's hearing. He's head over heels about what this king of Babylon is saying about him. You want me to be your partner in this war? He was part of the in crowd now, you could say. This hospitality that Hezekiah shows these messengers then wasn't so innocent. 
It was actually an indication that his faith was wobbling because he cared more about what Babylon thought than about what Yahweh said. And there his fate was sealed. There the fate of the kingdom was sealed. And though it wouldn't occur in his exact day, the prophet says to him, you can be sure that these same Babylonians that you're drinking tea with, they're going to come and spell the ruin of all of your family. You know, it might be frustrating to admit, frustrating to realize, but even a faith that has been demonstrated faithfully, that has come through those seasons of examination, even that faith can fail. It can become frustrated and fail. No matter how strong you think your faith is, it's not impervious, it's not impenetrable. And sometimes, like Hezekiah, our faith can lose focus. We can become charmed by the sweet-talking allure of what the world has to offer. And before we know it, we're sitting on a heap of failure. That's disconcerting. But let me say this too, that if you don't think that there is failure in your future, I'm not sure what kind of faith you have. And that sounds alarming. Your eyes are, what? I don't mean that to sound negative or cynical, and it's not that I don't believe that you have faith. I just know this, that any sort of faith that's manifested in the lives of sinners, like you and like me, is a faith that will fail. It's not a matter of when, it's a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You will succumb to frustration. Because we aren't perfect. We aren't impenetrable. Our faith is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, like the song says. The point is, what do you and I do in the aftermath of failure? That to me is the real test. When our faith is frustrated, frustrated to the point of breaking, frustrated to the point where we go back to those sins that we keep saying, I'm never going to go back to, where we keep making the wrong decision, where we keep doing the thing that we say we're never going to do. When we do that, how do you respond? Or we could ask this even too, when you see someone you know and their faith fails, how do you respond? Our first reaction is probably some combination of how could they and that's what they deserve. Because that's what our heart is naturally prone to. How could that person go back on their word and I guess that's what they get. I think though a better response and I think a response that I see played out in this life of Hezekiah is just that old sort of cliche phrase but it's true. There, but for the grace of God, I go. Just like Hezekiah, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, like that hymn says. We face seasons of examination where our faith is put to the test. We face seasons of frustration where sometimes we're forced to weep bitterly as we recognize our faith has failed. And we too, I think, even this morning are being worked on by the Spirit of God to demonstrate our faith in our daily lives. And that's why I find so much comfort in this life of faith as exampled by Hezekiah. Because it shows us that God has a thing for failures. 
He knew Hezekiah would fail, and he defended the city anyways. He had already seen Hezekiah make horrible deals with the king of Babylon, entertaining their flattery, entertaining their pleasantries, and he came to the defense anyways. Because that's the type of God we have, who relishes in the raw material of our failure to fashion faithful followers of his word. That's what he does. He reassures us over and over and over again that even when we fail, not if, when we fail, he is faithful. He never fails. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. A promise that has no end date, that has no expiration. And a promise which I would say allows us to persevere in our lives of faith. And all the ups and the downs and the seasons of trial and the seasons of frustration. Not because we are extraordinary but because our God is. Because our God never fails. Because our God is always the same. Because our God is always steady this morning. How is God calling you to demonstrate your faith? Maybe you've been sitting in the pews for far too long. Sitting thinking about, "Mm, I should probably do that. But you never seem to get around to it. I I feel like I could do that. I feel like I could be gifted in that way. How is God calling you to demonstrate your faith? Well, this morning maybe you're going through a very grievous time. A couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. How is God testing your faith? And maybe you've cried out before, but maybe he wants, you to, he wants to hear you again. That God, I'm at my breaking point. God, I need you to intervene. Or maybe this morning you've come to this, come to this church and you've come knowing that your faith has failed. And you don't know why you're here. You don't know why you showed up at all because you feel too ashamed. I failed. My faith has been frustrated. I'm telling you, you're here because your God is faithful. Who lifts up the fallen. Who lifts up the failures. Gets them back up on their feet and walks beside them again. Just like Hezekiah. He had a faith that was incredibly ordinary. And you and I as well. We have a faith that is tried, that is tested, that sometimes fails. And that God is always there. Because God God is the object of our faith. He's the one who never fails. Let us pray.